Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start tonight by talking about a new study that vindicates my skepticism of the evolutionary, evolutionary psychology story of how ancient hunter-gatherers and their roles can show us why men and women have different strengths and weaknesses. I still remember years ago reading a um, paper by an evolutionary psychologist who was talking about how uh, women are better at gathering because they have better color perception and that men are better at hunting because it's a dangerous sport and men are better at facing danger and all of this just so storiness of why men should be okay with being, you know, the provider and that they should be the ones doing the hard work and that women should be at home And it was just all ridiculous. And I could not believe that this was being taken even a tiny bit seriously. And um, yeah, so turns out it shouldn't be because it's ridiculous. And so a new survey of dozens, dozens of ethnographic papers published over the last 100 years describing 63 hunter-gatherer societies, as well as the burials of female hunters from around the world, has shown that the idea that men hunted and women gathered is not a reality at all. We were reading papers written by people who had lived with these groups and had studied their behavior, study co-author Kara Wall-Scheffler, a professor and co-chair of biology at Seattle Pacific University, told Live Science. They were looking at people and recording what they did. The team found that 79% of the groups, 50 of the 63 overall, had documentation of women hunters and that those women continued to hunt even after becoming mothers. The women would go out with many different tools. They had a very diverse toolkit all around the world, and if they saw an animal, they would kill it, Walshefler said. We were surprised by how the majority of groups showed women hunting, and there was no explicit taboo against that. They also found that overall, 70% of the female hunting trips were quote-unquote intentional, meaning the trip was specifically meant to bring back meat as opposed to finding prey while engaging in other tasks such as our classic gathering. For the 41 societies that had data on the subject specifically, 36 or 87% said that the hunting was intentional, while 5 or 12% said that it was opportunistic. And women also weren't limited to small game. In the Americas, they found that women made up to 50% of big game hunters. We reanalyzed big game 
burials from North and South America in which people were buried with tools or animal bones and prehistorically showed that women and men were 50-50 big game hunters, while Scheffler said, The researchers point to two books that solidified the erroneous idea of men being hunters and women gatherers. And in fact, the books were literally called Man the Hunter, published in 1968, and Woman the Gatherer, published in 1983. Man the Hunter was based on a 1966 symposium at the University of Chicago, which, probably unsurprising to you, featured 70 men and only five women. The conclusions were largely based on ethnographies from the 18th to the 20th century by, well, white men who would have gone to these places and interacted mainly with the men in these societies. And basically, since they already believed that women were less than, they didn't pay any attention to the women in these traditional societies because they, of course, assumed that much like they did, women were treated as second-class citizens. And so these ethnographies turned out to be pretty darn skewed. And since everybody loves a narrative that reinforces what they already believe, nobody thought at the time to interrogate these ethnographies in any way that would have shown their bias. Now, the latter was meant as a response to the first book, notes Walshuffler. The purpose of the second book was to say, fine, men are hunting, but actually hunting is not a great way to bring in calories because it's very inconsistent, she said. Because it's so inconsistent, males may be doing it, but they're not actually providing for the females since females were bringing in their own food and they're totally fine because there were always, they were always gathering. And so this ended up creating more rigid gender roles in which men were hunting and women were gathering and never the twain shall meet. And that has stuck around. She added, it doesn't make sense that if something like hunting for animals would help feed their community, that women would ignore it. Having these rigid divisions of labor wouldn't make sense. But again, this was coming out of the 60s where we were still very much in that mentality here in America, especially of rigid gender roles. It hadn't really started to take off that much in uh, the 60s in academia yet that, you know, women maybe should have a better place in um, these kinds of studies and so it isn't really until the 70s that we start to get real change. Um, and so this was also reinforced by museum displays and popular media depictions. And so a 2019 study co-authored by Sang Hee Lee, a biological anthropologist at the University of California at Riverside, found that when doing a Google image search for, quote, prehistoric humans, they found 207 portrayals of men hunting and only 16 of women. And so I think that you've all seen 
depictions like that where women are making baskets and men are coming back with spears and, uh, you know, butchered meat. And so it is a very pervasive and, uh, persuasive argument because again, it reinforces a traditionalist idea of the roles of men and women. And so the present study actually found that women hunted with a variety of weapons, including spears, machetes, knives, and crossbows. Some also employed dogs, nets, and traps. Some hunted with their children. So they would either take their children with them, have a baby strapped to their back, for instance, or they would leave them with um, maybe an elder member of the of the community while they went out hunting. And they hunted, again, all sorts of prey, including, uh, as noted in the Americas, big game such as deer and moose. Now, they did find variations in how men and women hunted, for instance, in their preferred, in their preferred weapons and hunting party size, but they found little evidence for rigid gender roles. If somebody liked to hunt, they could just hunt, Wall Scheffler said. So the next time a man tries to tell you that men hunted the mammoth and that's why civilization was built, tell them that you'd bet good money that there were women on that hunt too. And of course, if you take more than a minute to think about it, this makes complete sense. It seems pretty silly to preclude half of your population from such an important activity. And so, yeah, it is, this is one of those classic creme de la creme classics of uh, bias in research and how you have to be very careful not to bring your own bias to your research. And it's especially hard in, say, ethnography and archaeology and anthropology. These are the places where it's very hard because uh, it's so easy to slip into saying, oh, well, that makes sense because I know this in my society. And so clearly this is parallel to what's in my society. And so it's, it is a continuing effort, uh, for, uh, sort of more modern ethnographers to be more careful about this. But it's still, um, you know, when I was taking anthropology courses in college, I still remember, um, you know, one of my professors talking about how when you look at people doing ethnographies of, say, um, you know, a ritual and someone is supposed to be demon-possessed and there was a case where someone said like, oh, I totally saw this person levitate. It was amazing. But they were also videotaping the session. And, you know, when they went back to the videotape, clearly the person did not actually levitate. But the person was convinced in the moment because they were part of the ritual. They were engaged that they actually saw the person being levitated. And so it really goes to show how you have to really kind of 
uh, detach yourself and have a more rigorous and scientific approach to these sorts of things. Because otherwise, you end up with this ridiculous just so story that, you know, men hunted the mammoth and women gathered the berries and, um, you know, ridiculous things like, you know, because women have periods, they couldn't hunt because their blood would uh, attract predators and all sorts of ridiculous things that people posited over the years. And then when you actually go and look at these societies, there's no such rigid, um, hardly any of them have these rigid bounds. And if you actually ask some of the ones that do, they've probably developed them uh, based on other people's ideas of rigid gender roles. So I just think of like, um, you know, for instance, like the cargo cults that developed this whole thing around having had contact with American and British soldiers during the war. Um, you know, these sorts of influences can actually pull back into new ways of thinking and doing within these communities if they're contacted by other people. So yeah, it totally makes sense to me. And actually, interestingly, they found that women tended to employ a greater variety of both tools and strategies than men. And so yeah, it turns out the women are actually potentially more innovative than the men. And the paper also suggests adopting the neutral term forager to describe the work of both men and women in these societies to bring much needed foodstuffs to the table. So instead of saying hunter-gatherers, we can say forager communities. And so, yeah, I think that's a much better idea. Okay. So now we're actually going to move on and talk about what pastoralists can teach us about the world that is more about a world that is more sustainable and less driven by property rights, capital, and a staunch inability to adapt to changing environments like we tend to have here. Now, many pastoralist groups have actually been forced or are still in the process of being pressured to become agriculturists or or urban dwellers. But this is a model built on the idea that pastoralism is a more primitive way of life, much like forager societies. And yet many pastoralists have been practicing the same herding and group life techniques since before the common era and have continued to thrive. They have also been unfairly targeted in conversations about things like the need to reduce or even eliminate our reliance on livestock and conserve land. Pastoralist herds and flocks are completely different from giant factory farms in westernized societies. And so their use of carbon is very, very different. And, um, you know, it's also similar to the arguments for instance, the idea that we should have all organic inputs and that we shouldn't use transgenic foods and all of these sorts of things where we think that our ideas are what should happen. And, you know, a lot of these people do use all organic inputs. Um, the people who are, um, agriculturalists at least, cause 
these people are not, don't tend to be, but just like the idea that, um, you know, we, all of these ideas presuppose that people have access to choices that many people in the developing world do not. So if you took away pastoralists flocks and then tried to assimilate them into agriculture, for instance, if you also then want them to use all organic inputs, there isn't enough food to go around. Um, you know, look at what happened in Sri Lanka. Um, my absolute, one of the, the supervillains in my pantheon of supervillains. Um, oh, I'm, I can't remember her name at the moment. Um, it's Shivana, it's Shivani something. Um, but she is the absolute worst. No, it's Vandana Shiva. That's who it is. Oh, that person is the absolute worst. Uh, and basically was partially at fault for Sri Lanka having a giant, um, famine basically because they tried to adopt an idea that you couldn't use, uh, any kind of chemicals on your agriculture. And so, you know, in that case, it wasn't even someone really coming from outside with Western ideas. It was someone who, um, you know, technically should have known the land and the people better. And so even that, uh, you know, you can see how when you try and impose your ideas on a people and their land, things can go really bad. And so I think that that's definitely something that people have sort of um, put on to pastoralist as well, because they don't understand their way of life. And so they have this idea that, oh, we can make you better by turning you into farmers or whatever. And so, yeah, it is pretty ridiculous. And it turns out, actually, that they use the land and organize their society in ways that we could learn a lot from, especially when it comes to combating climate change and the loss of biodiversity. Now, there's good in arguments to be made, for instance, that encouraging grazing leads to less wildfire spread because grazing keeps biomass down and pastoralists engage in controlled fire action, which helps reduce the available food fuel during the hot months when fires can spread spontaneously. And so that's just one way. They're also good for biodiversity because they help keep down uh, vegetation that spreads easily. So for instance, if you have something like um, um, a particular weed that grows really well, if you've got, for instance, goats and sheep, goats especially, they can eat that and give room for other um, plants to develop, especially because they also are good at seed dispersal because they are eating plants and they are defecating out seeds and parts of plants and they are actually helping out biodiversity. 
They are not uh, ruining biodiversity the way that, say, agriculture does. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I'm going to talk about it some more, but it really is impressive how much we can learn from pastoralists and how much of an actually, like, legitimately sustainable and environmentally friendly way of life it is. So first, writing in the conversation, uh, Ian Schoons, a professor, a prof- professorial fellow at the Institute of Development Studies in the UK, notes that he has been researching land, livelihoods, and agrarian change, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, for over 30 years. And so he has co-authored an open access book on this research showing how pastoralists live with variability and respond to uncertainties and how they are hindered by land grabbing, energy projects, and urbanism, as well as political decision making. Um, you know, that kind of we know better than you what you need. And so in his article, he expands on five lessons we can learn from in today's challenging world. First is embracing uncertainty and change. And so pastoralists have dealt for for millennia with drought, famine, and disease, and they continue to survive and thrive. Two, that they have mobile lives. Mobility is central to pastoralist lives, and it requires skill and intelligence to move animals between different pasture lands and to use those lands when and where they are available. And so there's a lot that goes into finding the right pastures in order to move animals there. You have to have a lot of skills and you really have to know the land. And so they develop deep knowledge of both their animals and the land around them. And this allows them to use otherwise unproductive rangelands across more than half the world's surface. And so, or land surface. And so that's a big thing is that a lot of these animals, especially goats and sheep, are grazing in areas that aren't necessarily arable for agriculture. And so the idea of pushing pastoralists off their land is kind of ridiculous because a lot of those lands are not viable for agriculture. And so you end up having to then add a lot of inputs into the land if you want to then change it over to agriculture. And so it's much more sustainable to leave it as pasture as pasture. And so it just is, it's, it's kind of obvious, but, um, it's very hard to understand for me why people don't see that. (laughs) So number three is global markets and trade. And he notes that pastoralists have always been at the center of trade routes. They engage in cross-border trade and have been integral to globalization, despite often being seen as backward. So think of all of the great trade routes, the Silk Road, um, you know, the 
connections between uh, China and Rome, the connections between all of these places, Sub-Saharan Africa and Europe, all of those trade routes were facilitated by nomads, by pastoralists, by people who moved goods and people along these routes. And they work within markets that are based on trust and connections. And so they're able to weather failing market conditions by going outside of traditional marketplaces. So because they tend to have connections, they tend to have these networks of people with whom they have connection and they have relationships If, say, the global market isn't working, they can turn to a more local market because they already have that in place. Number four is disaster and emergency management. Pastoralists are constantly faced with disasters and conflicts in areas where they live. They survive by sharing knowledge, using weather forecasts, scouts to find new places, to check to see if There's warfare where they're trying to go to and all sorts of other knowledge gatherers. They also respond to uncertainty with, quote, asset redistribution, comradeship, diversification, and collective responses. And so like many traditional societies, they believe that people should be a cohesive group rather than rugged individuals the way we have embraced in the West, much to our detriment. And five is, of course, a huge one. It is rethinking land access. And so pastoralists reject many forms of private property, individualism, and market-based approaches to land management. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that everything is shared collectively, necessarily, but it shows an understanding of the need for collective action and ownership. And so, yeah, there are things that are owned collectively, but people still also have potentially their own even land, but much of it is collective. And so we are going to take a break to do some show promos and some PSAs. When we come back, I'm actually going to talk about an example of a pastoralist group and how they manage uh, land use. So do come back or stay for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps do not as much so, yet never dull. 
Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as noted, we are going to talk now about a example pastoralist uh, group. And so Paul Hooper, adjunct associate professor of anthropology at the University of New Mexico, studied the people who live around the headwaters of the Yenisei River in the Tuva region located in Russia and northern Mongolia. And so over a four-year period, Hooper studied patterns of land use and ownership among the people who refer to themselves in Tuva as Malchin, meaning livestocker. His findings have been published in the journal Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B. Biological Sciences. I traveled with a small team in a four-wheel drive van to visit families at their camps up in the region's high mountain valleys. We drank hundreds of bowls of milk tea while listening to family stories and stories of migration. People would study the maps with concentration in order to point out the best location to forage wild blueberries during the summer. The herders know and appreciate their landscape at a level that I found inspiring. The generosity of families in hosting us was also just exceptional, he said. 
And so Hooper looked at ownership of herds, vehicles, equipment, a house in town, and other assets. And according to the research, given relatively stable patterns of precipitation and returns to capital improvement, families generally benefit from reusing the same camps year after year. We show that locations with higher economic defensibility and capital investment, winter camps and camps located in mountain river valleys, are claimed and inherited more frequently than summer camps and camps located in open steppe. He also noted that the pastoralists in Tuva and Mongolia specialize in sheeps and goat primarily for their meat. They keep cows for dairy products and meat, as well as horses, yaks, and camels. And so in the warm seasons, they occupy mobile yurts and create open pens, which are usually less labor-intensive than the permanent shelters found in winter camps. In order to minimize the impact of snow that builds up on flatter terrain, the Malchin build their best winter camps near south-facing mountain slopes where sun and wind help expose pasture. Winter camps are actually in shorter supply than summer camps, and so they're generally furnished with more material buildings and are commonly found near hayfields, increasing their value. During most of the year, a camp will have between one and four yurts made of white felt or canvas with a pen for sheep and goats and another for cattle with a few horses and sometimes even a Russian vehicle. Families mark their claims symbolically by dipping a hole and setting a carved wooden post for hitching their horses. That's how passerby know that someone plans to return to the area. In the winter, there is typically a cabin and sturdy shelters for animals and sometimes a small bathhouse or sauna. It is an informal tradition that a family has always come to this area, and so it's understood that they, quote-unquote, own it. There is some system for registering the camps with the government, but it reflects the older informal practices. Now, inheritance tends to be along the patrilineal line, but this is not necessarily true, and sometimes there is inheritance along the matrilineal line. And so that inheritance tends to be for those winter camps or those in mountain or river valleys. Summer camps and camps on the steppes were less frequently inherited. And some of those camps are actually even shared depending on the season. And so Hooper explains that one spot might be the summer camp for one family, but the fall camp for another family. Property rights don't come out of nowhere. They arise and evolve according to local conditions and context. In Tuva and Mongolia, there is a mixed system of property rights. Some areas are open access, but others are recognized by the community as being owned by particular families during certain parts of the year. The flexibility of this system allows us to look at the factors that predicted informal ownership of camps versus temporary use, Hooper writes. 
the factors associated with private ownership reflect key principles from models of property rights evolution. Locations that are informally owned and inherited tend to be consistently productive during the season of residence and are geographically bounded. For example, camps located in mountain valleys or with greater capital investments, such as cabins and pens. The results reflect more general principles regarding the evolution of property rights in all cultures. This example is interesting because it is very locally organized and regulated at the level of the community, all within the context of publicly owned, open access, unfenced land. It is a system of local property rights, community level regulation of ownership rights that has operated no matter which state has been in power over the centuries, the Qing, Soviet, Russian, or Mongolian. And so that is one of the big things is that they are living this hyper-local life where they are basically not paying any attention to who runs the state and who, what state officially claims the land that they're on. And I think they have been somewhat lucky because this is not a place where there's going to tend to be a lot of conflict because it is a very rugged, hard to live place um, if you're not used to it. And so uh, they don't tend to have the same problems that other pastoralists have had, for instance, say in sub-Saharan Africa, where when you have different factions trying to control your land, you can have a lot of conflict, a lot of, um, you know, real war-tornness happening to your lands. Um, and so, uh, you know, these people in the sort of upper uh, step are lucky at least not to have to deal with that particular issue. And so, yeah, it is very interesting and very cool. Now, Hooper did find a connection between having larger herds and having more wealth outside of the traditional society. And so there are people who have success in the modern market and who have been educated uh, outside of the traditional uh, community. And this allows some of them to prosper in also the traditional herding. So they're able to both have those herds and be part of the traditional community and also to prosper outside. And so um, they are actually able to do both of those things. Now, this particular lifestyle dates to at least the second century BC overall. And this particular current form with the yurts and the goats and the sheep to probably around the ninth century AD. I think this research points to the fact that not all lands need to be formally private property in order for people to repeatedly return to an area and invest in its upkeep, Hooper summarized. I lived for years on different public lands around New Mexico and would pick up trash, and the campsites I returned to repeatedly became noticeably cleaner over time. The Tuvan case shows, case study shows that informal community consensus allows people to gain some of the benefits of private ownership, expectations of repeated use, incentives for sustainable use, and return to, to capital investment. 
in a context of open access public land. This suggests that there are alternatives to the fence-me-in enclosure privatization mindset that took over the American West in the late 1800s. So I think we have something to learn from these examples where land use rights are based on community consensus and a history of use and investment. And I think that's super important and super correct. Um, you know, that is definitely my overall philosophy is that we should have a lot more emphasis on local consensus government than um, overarching large governments. Um, I'm especially not thrilled with my government uh, at the moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would assume that most of you listening are also not particularly thrilled with your government at the moment, uh, your overall government. And so, um, you know, even in Massachusetts, uh, there is famously the idea that, you know, the politicians in Boston know absolutely nothing about what is going on in Western Mass. And so I am a proponent of hyperlocal government. And I think that it would be a much better way for us to live. Um, you know, I obviously understand the needs for globalization and at this point, and I think that there is obviously a system that would have to have, uh, larger entities in order to connect globally. But I still think we could organize that in a way that also is more, uh, conducive to hyperlocal. Uh, control of land and land use. And also, um, I think it's really interesting and important to think about the use of private property and how, um, our capitalist society has this absolute obsession with private property that is just unhealthy and very bad and especially is very bad right now as we're trying to deal with the ravages of climate change and to have people who have this property that they can do whatever they want with, um, you know, that they can deforest, that they can have people drill for oil on or, you know, all of these other things. It's, uh, it's not great. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> okay. And so let's turn now to the Arctic. And this is a new policy paper. So it's, it's just a suggestion. It's a, it's a paper that has been put together called Data Driven Subnational Decision Making in the Arctic. The Power of Indigenous Voices and Data Supporting the Green Transition. And so this was put together by a team at the University of Lapland in partnership with the Arctic Passion Project, and it hopes to forage and forge a new path of cooperation in this region. The paper hopes to enhance evidence-based decision-making at the local and regional level with respect to two themes, inclusion of indigenous knowledge and data availability. Uh, data availability needs and gaps in managing and planning the green transition. And so the goal would be to increase the number of persons with indigenous identity in administrative bodies, better understanding indigenous communities' relationship to the land and water, 
and facilitate further knowledge exchange between Indigenous communities, scientists and researchers, and policymakers, both to ensure Indigenous perspectives are included on policies and plans, but also for transparency in scientific research results and an explanation of how they would benefit Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations of the community. And that the inclusion of three parallel perspectives, Indigenous, local, and scientific, become the norm when developing risk assessments, reports, plans, and policies. And so, yeah, basically the idea is we need to have more input from Indigenous people in the Arctic who know the land, know what's going on, and who live there. (laughs) So it'd be really great if they could have a bigger seat at the table. When it comes to data availability, they found that there is a need to develop better tools for assessing local and global impacts and benefits of green energy investments. So they suggest the development of comprehensive databases, capturing green transition planning information, and data to inform more holistic policymaking. They also suggest that national and EU policymakers could consider supporting cooperation between Arctic municipalities and regions with respect to climate mitigation and adaptation, but stressed that this work should focus on concrete actions and exchanges of specific models, tools, and processes rather than abstract sharing of good practices. So it's all great to say, yeah, this sounds like a good idea, but they want them to be like, this is what we did. This is what you could do. And they also discuss the need to invest more in generating data and aggregating information related to social indicators linked directly to green transition projects. So part of this is that you have to kind of sell this idea to people because if you want people to transition to green energy, to these green projects, then you need to show them why they should participate, why they should be invested in this. And I think that that's a really interesting and good thing to do is to actually really uh, bring people in rather than just imposing policy. And so all of this was formulated from 30 semi-structured in-depth interviews with a sample of Arctic and sub-Arctic sub-national decision makers, rights holders, and stakeholders. So basically they went to the Arctic and they interviewed a bunch of people. And so they then created this consensus document. They found that in the Yukon and Northwest Territories in Canada, that Indigenous knowledge is being incorporated into the work of strategic climate change uh, strategies. Now, in Nunavut, that is a unique place because that is a territory that is now run basically uh, f- almost fully by an indigenous government. And so there's still a territory of Canada technically, but they are considered an autonomous region. 
And so here, community-based knowledge and assessments are key, obviously, because they have this unique situation where most of the governing people are actually uh, Inuit. And so that is a, uh, <laughs> that is the exception, unfortunately, but, um, they have a lot of great programs that they're doing where they're, um, working with the government on, uh, studying narwhals and all sorts of things. But that's because, you know, they have this autonomy. They have this access to the government. And so they found that the interactions between the government and indigenous people in Alaska is not as well developed as in the Canadian Arctic, which is not shocking. Though they note that, quote, in, two, in 2022, the fish, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service developed a draft Alaska Natives Relations Policy where, among others, it was recognized that Alaska Native peoples have extensive knowledge of ecosystem processes derived from long-term local ways of knowing that can help to guide conservation planning and strategies. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in a draft policy, indicated their intent to share information and data with tribes, Alaska Native Organizations, or ANOs, and Alaska Native Corporations, or ANCs, including respecting and valuing indigenous traditional ecological knowledge received from tribes through elders, hunters, and fishermen, research and scientific data collection, and communicate results to tribes, ANOs, and ANCs through public outreach. And so, um, yeah, they're definitely trying to get a better uh, system going on there. And so, of course, though, this is contingent on a whole bunch of things. Um, for instance, whether or not they are able to do this based on who's in the government. And uh, if anybody challenges anything in court these days, chances are it is not going to go well if you want to actually preserve any kind of rights for anyone um, other than white Christians. And so, oh, sorry, white Christian men. Um, as long as you're a white Christian man in, uh, this country, the Supreme Court's got your back. But otherwise, uh, you're pretty much, uh, not going to find any joy. Anyways, <laughs> we're not bitter at all. Uh, so collaboration in Europe is regulated by various laws that require consultation with the Sami people. So those are the people who live in Lapland. Uh, but given their small share of the population of Scandinavian countries, the Sami are often only represented at the local level and not at the regional or national level. And so, you know, at the national level, usually it's just like, oh, we have to tell you that we're doing this thing. Uh, or we have to consult with you, but we're going to do it anyways. So you might as well just say yes. And so one of the challenges that the researchers note overall is the potential clash between indigenous ways of knowing and the limitations of sharing that knowledge with outsiders, uh, with those of the scientific perspective and the traditional trust, lack of trust of scientific knowledge by indigenous people. And so obviously indigenous people have a long history of having 
uh, been treated as objects by science and not as uh, human beings with souls and, uh, uh, you know, human beings uh, with what we would roughly call a soul. Um, I don't actually believe in ephemeral souls. Anyways, that is a totally different thing. Uh, anyways, <laughs> but basically they are used to not having had uh, scientists treat them particularly well. So it's it's not surprising that they would be wary. The above framework seeks to work to bridge these challenges and create a new way forward for both governments and indigenous people to work together on the transformation to a green energy future. So let's hope that works out because um, it is a very hopeful document. But as we know, uh, it is just a suggestion at this point and who knows what's going to happen in the future. But let's move on <laughs> to how modern indigenous inhabitants can help inform anthropological research. And so a new study published again in PLOS One by Hermione Schofler of the University of the Philippines, Diliman, and her colleagues suggest that to stone tools bear microscopic evidence of ancient plant technology. So finding evidence of prehistoric plant technology, especially in tropical regions, is extremely hard. Fibers rot easily along with other plant materials. And that's why finding objects made of anything other than stone, basically, is extremely hard the further back you go in time. The earliest artifacts made from plant fibers found thus far in Southeast Asia date to a mere 8,000 years ago. Luckily, it turns out that you can see the echoes of plant use on those stone tools. The evidence was found on stone tools from the Taban Cave in Palawan, Philippines, dating as far back as 39,000 years ago. The tools have microscopic damage that built up as the tools were used. Modern indigenous communities use tools to strip plants like bamboo and palm in order to turn the rigid stems into supple fibers for tying or weaving. So researchers tried this technique using stone tools and found that they leave a characteristic pattern of microscopic wear that was identified on the stone artifacts from Taban Cave. Not only does this show very early evidence for fiber use in Southeast Asia, it also highlights a way to find evidence of fiber use in other areas. So uh, one of my favorite things, artifacts that are already in collections, might be able to be re-examined to help prove fiber usage in other areas around the world at these early stages. The authors add, this study pushes back in time the antiquity of fiber technology in Southeast Asia. It means that the prehistoric groups who lived at Tebon Cave had the possibility to make baskets and traps, but also ropes that can be used to build houses, sell boats, hunt with bows, and make composite objects. Which, you know, is not really surprising because we know that these people had um, obviously some pretty advanced technology and community. So, um, you know, even though this is at a really early time period, when we think of the Stone Age, we usually think of, you know, people living in a cave um, 
with just stones, but that's because of the fact that we don't have the actual material evidence of things like nets and uh, baskets and traps and all of the things that would have been built using fiber because this fiber disintegrates and rots really easily. And so, um, you know, we find it in places like the high desert, you have, uh, you know, there are ancient Egyptian socks, for instance, um, which are still much earlier in time or much closer to us in time. But um, places like that, you'll find um, actual uh, material, but that's about as far back as you go as far as having real scraps of material. Um, I think there have been some others, but I can't recall them off the top of my head. I'm sorry. But I know that, you know, we do find very small scraps of fibers in some areas in um, in caves, actually, because uh, those tend to be a place with better preservation um, or in other spots that have really good preservation. But much like with fossils, it's really hard to have the exact right uh, combination of elements in order to preserve that kind of material. So if we can find indirect evidence for it, such as on stone tools, that is very exciting. Okay, so that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me on Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widget by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.